Well, good evening, everyone. Oh, come on now. If I'm going to preach tonight, you all could do better than that, all right? Good evening, everyone. Okay, make me feel welcome. That'll make me feel confident, all right? If you've got a Bible this, uh, this evening, I want to turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 is our text. If you are new to the Christian faith, if you're new to the Bible, Genesis is the book of beginnings. When we, when we come to the Bible, we're basically looking as human beings for four big questions to be answered. First one is, where do we come from? Why are we here? The third one is, how should we live? And the fourth one is, where are we going? What happens to people when they die? Is there a culmination to all of human history? And we find these answers in the Bible, and Genesis is our book of beginnings. It gives us answers to the question, why are we here, and how basically should we live? In Genesis 1 and 2, we find that God created the creation good, specifically man I'm talking about. It's all good. But he specifically made man good and then his wife Eve good. He gave them a good nature for the purpose of carrying out good works. In Genesis chapter 3, we find out why humanity is the way that it is today. Why people physically die and why there is a moral and ethical problem with people that we call sin. So if you've got Genesis chapter 3, hold that in readiness. Uh, In going with our series theme, I think uh, the reason that this conversation is recorded is going to be very obvious. So by way of introduction, as you're holding Genesis 3 in readiness, you all may remember that back in 2016, uh, the Oxford Dictionary chose post-truth as its word of the year, and it cited the following reasons. One was, after much discussion, debate, and research, the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year is post-truth. It's an adjective defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Now, why was this chosen? Well, they said that they noticed that this word, this idea, had been around for at least a decade, and Oxford Dictionary saw that there was a spike in social media and in the news regarding its frequent use in the context of the UK's departure from the European Union and the presidential election in the United States that year. It's also become associated with what's known as post-truth politics. Post-truth politics is a, pop, is a political culture in which debate is largely framed by appeals to emotion disconnected from the details of public policy and by the repeated assertion of talking points which, which factual rebuttals are ignored. Now, just take stock of what's happened here. Don't give me the facts, just tell me what I want to hear in keeping with my emotional attitude towards the situation. Now, there's a lot that can be said about this. But one thing is that we all by now ought to be recognizing that there is a portion of American and world culture culture that no longer adheres to objective truth. This should be very apparent by now. Now, Secondly, it reveals to us that no matter how desperately people try to ignore truth and make it subjective, as in my truth, your truth, 
they cannot help but appeal to some truth outside themselves when they are wronged or sinned against and there is no justice on their behalf. Thirdly, it reveals to us the deceptive nature of sin in people's lives and in governments and society and its incredible ability to morally and ethically corrupt human beings in their minds. And when we dig into the source of this perverse view, we find the great deceiver. Now, this brings uh, me to the goal of our lesson tonight, which is stages of deception that we see in Genesis chapter 3, stages of deception, and how we must respond to this post-truth culture that we're in. So if you've got your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter, okay? Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, God has said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, Oh, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be just like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate it. And she also gave to her husband with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loin coverings for themselves. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the coolness of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, the, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you'll go, and the dust you will eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you, In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, 
and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife names, her, her name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Look, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat of it and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent them out of the garden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove them out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed a cherub. Pay attention to that. A cherub and the flaming sword which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, evidently not too long after Adam and Eve were created, we don't know how many years it was, man reconsidered these ideas, these commandments that God had given them, given him and his wife in the light of this fruit's appeal to the eyes. And the desire to have the understanding of the nature of evil along with good. And this desire not only rested in his intellectual doubts, but also his emotional desires within, within as he wrestled with the longing to be more than God had made him. This is a key idea in this passage. Eve and then Adam wrestled with the longing to be more than what God had made them. So to phrase the matter in contemporary language, they sought to identify themselves or self-identify as someone they were not based upon a lie and not objective reality. And in doing so, they attempted to go beyond their nature. You know the definition of the English prefect, prefix trans? Right? You know the definition of the English prefix trans? It means to go beyond or to go across. So this evening I want to make several observations from this passage. This passage is really theologically rich. We can't pull everything out of it. But I'd like to do it for the purpose of making some practical points of application. Especially in lieu of the fact that Adam is the first man, he's the first husband, and he's also the first father And next Sunday is Father's Day, right? So let's take a look at four stages of deception or several stages of deception, all right? The first stage of deception that I see in this passage is the asking of illegitimate questions for the purpose of deceiving when the questioner already knows the truth. Look at verse 2. It's framed as a question in the New American Standard that I read from, and it reads, Indeed, Has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, in the Hebrew Bible, there actually are no, like, question marks and exclamation points. So the interpreter, the translator, has to know when the the writer is asking an interrogative or a question, okay? So, uh, one way that we could read this is, maybe better in English, would be, God has said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Really? Did God really say that? 
It's an illegitimate question. This is an illegitimate question with the purpose of deceiving. Now, a legitimate question, we like legitimate questions, those are the questions that we ask for the purpose of expanding upon knowledge. We want to learn more. But a legitimate question also reveals from within the person a search for truth. Tell me more about this. Tell me how it really works. Now, we have to stop and think about the world that we're living in. What is the truthful answer to a question in a world wrought with lies? What is the truthful answer? When you think about the acceptance of lies in our lives and in our culture, in our nation, when you think about the acceptance of lies, they reveal over time the intellectual and the emotional bankruptcy of people. And people find themselves with no solid foundation from which to live their lives. Now, when we think about illegitimate questions, and this is what Satan asked, he asked an illegitimate question. An illegitimate question is one that is asked for the intention of deceiving at least two people. This is my judgment, okay? The person being asked and the person asking. Now, here's what I think. Let me explain this. When Satan asks Eve, has God really said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? He knew full well he was misquoting God. He may have very well been in close proximity when God gave Adam those instructions. But Eve knew it too. That Satan intended to deceive Eve is obvious but it seems to me that the second person he intended to deceive was himself. Here's why I say this. Have you ever noticed that people who are real liars, real deceivers, are never truly content with just deceiving and misleading themselves? People that are real liars want followers, don't they? Now, They recruit followers, but why do they do this? Some Christians actually speculate in their understanding of the end times, how the world's really going to end. They speculate that Satan has continued with his evil, deceiving work for the purpose of acquiring so many sinful followers that on judgment day, God will look out and he will see the sheep and the goats, and the goats are going to be the vast big group. And there's going to be this little group of sheep that are his followers, saved and justified by faith. And they think that God will look out over the judgment. They think that Satan thinks this. They think that Satan thinks God is going to look out over the judgment and he's going to realize the consequences of the narrow gate of the gospel. And he's going to say, I I just don't have the heart to judge these people as being unrighteous and cast them far away from me. And maybe, maybe Satan thinks he's going to stand up and he's going to say, how could a good God create a world with such evil in it? You knew, God, through your foreknowledge that all of us were going to be evil. You could have stopped it. You could have stopped it. And you did nothing. Besides, you know, God, if you really loved us, you wouldn't send us away. After all, Jesus loves everybody, doesn't he? 
Oh, doesn't the Scripture say, God, judge not lest ye be judged? Some people think that this is part of Satan's plan. Stop and consider just the nature of God. He knows everything. Everything. He has all of the power. He is completely holy in his nature. He is morally and ethically perfect. Could Satan ever possibly think that he could emotionally blackmail God into believing a lie? Isn't going to happen, is it? That will never happen on Judgment Day. Yet, how many people throughout human history have followed Satan as a deceiver and deceived so many people to follow them to their own death? Can you think of anybody? Jim Jones comes to mind. He was of the Restoration Movement in his early days. Karl Marx. Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Lenin. David Koresh. We could go on and on just in our day alone and think about so many people that are lying so deeply and so seriously and know that what they are doing is lying. People can and will ask legitimate questions, but watch out for the person who asks an illegitimate question. They may, underline may as many times as you like, they may be doing it with the intention of deceiving you and themselves. The second stage, first is asking illegitimate questions. The second is the contradiction and flat-out denial of truth. When Eve demonstrated that she knew what she was talking about, what was Satan's only recourse? He just lied about it. He just openly lied. But Eve was ready, right? She had this foundation of necessary knowledge. And folks, when it comes to knowledge, what Eve knew in comparison to what we have been given, Eve didn't have much at all. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered how she even knew which trees to eat off of and which tree not to eat off of? You ever thought about that? The only way that she would have actually known which trees to eat off of and which one not to eat off of is if her husband told her. You know why? She wasn't even created yet when the Lord God gave the first man, Adam, those commands. It was Adam's moral and ethical duty to tell the one whom God gave him to bring her along in her understanding of truth. Eat off these, don't eat off that one. There is a divine expectation for human beings who know God to actually pass along his word to those with us and to pass it along so that generations after we're dead, people will still know and fear and love the living God. Now, there's also a divine expectation that his word would actually be believed and trusted. Now, if you ever stop and think about, what does it mean to actually have faith? Saving faith. Consider these two ideas. Faith is, no, is number one, belief, but it is number two, trust. Belief and trust, you have to have these two things working together. And I really think that Eve actually had both. 
I think that Eve actually had both. But when she reconsidered the idea that Satan put in her head, she began to waver in her trust. And that's why she ate it. And in this defining moment, really this defining moment of human history, Satan gained a follower, didn't he? As the greatest liar and deceiver, he gained a follower. And as a result, I'm sure in his mind, he began to self-justify everything that he had just done. See, you think just like me. He can't be true. Here's the third stage, the making of false promises. Satan's two-part reply to Eve is actually a well-thought-out strategic lie. If liars are going to be good liars, they've got to be well-thought-out liars and strategic liars. He tells her two things. One, you surely won't die if you eat this fruit. And two, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, the first part of Satan's Satan's statement is obviously a lie, since in chapter 2.16, the passage just comes right out and says, Moses says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. But the second statement is the one that takes Eve by surprise. It makes her reconsider the whole commandment. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve may very well have thought to herself, you know, Adam never told me we would be just like God if we ate it. He just said we would die. God told him, don't eat of that tree. If you do, you'll die. Adam never told me we would be like God, knowing good and evil. And so I think for the first time, the first human began to suspect God is keeping something from me. And this one over here has just revealed the truth. But the fourth stage is the end. Death. Death as promised by God. The last stage of deception is always death. Think about it in just the terms of Christian cults. What happened to Jim Jones and his group? What happened to David Koresh? What will happen to those who still believe as they do, but have not yet passed away? The same fate holds them. Spiritual death will lead to eternity in hell. The last stage of deception is the fulfillment of what God had actually promised would happen. Not the continued life the deceiver promised, but death that the God warned about with illegitimate questions coming with the intention to to deceive. Follow denials of the truth and false promises, all of which are bookended by death on the end. Now, the discussion between Satan and Eve had turned the garden. Think about this. If 2016 gave us post-truth as a legitimate word, 
what really happened in the Garden of Eden. Satan had just taken Eve and then Adam and turned the Garden of Eden into a post-culture, I'm sorry, into a post-truth culture in which debate was framed largely by appeals to be like someone they had no right to be like. And by ignoring and denying facts, objective truth based upon what they think their own identity really ought to be and what their own authority in the matter really ought to be. Now, let me, let me start to bring this to a close with some practical applications. In a post-truth culture that we live in, where the God of this world is so successfully deceiving as the father of lies, there are, there are a lot of things that we could say about this. But I'm only going to make a few for the sake of time. And the first is this. Satan's temptation was never really about getting to Eve. Satan's temptation to Eve was not about ultimately getting to Eve. It was about getting to her husband because he was the representative head of humanity. And Satan knew that. Satan was out to get the head of the household. Write that down, take it home with you. Satan was out to get the head of the household. He is the spiritual leader of their home. He would be the father of their children. He would eventually be the grandfather of his children's children, and so on and so on and so forth. God never intended for his good creation to fall into sin. We should, according to the good creation that God created, be living on this earth, not knowing sin and evil at all, not having that knowledge at all, and Adam and Eve still being alive today. And all of us looking back and saying, those two right there, they're our first parents. And that man back there, he is the head of humanity. It wasn't, stop and consider this, it wasn't until Adam ate of the fruit that what happened? Both of their eyes were open. This is very interesting. In my judgment, it seems reasonable to believe that Eve told Adam she ate of the fruit. Adam took a look at her and said, well, you're not dead. Maybe he's wrong. Maybe he was lying. So he eats of the fruit as well. And with this came a change in the spiritual nature of both. God's first and foremost point is the death that I'm talking about is spiritual nature. Once you've done this, you're both spiritually dead. This is the reason for the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, to come to believers at baptism. Secondly, physical death followed. And so they lived in a fallen state. I think in the Old Testament, in Genesis, it says Adam lived 931 years. The representative head of humanity lived to see the effects of sin almost all the way up to the time of the flood. Satan was out to get the head of the household, the head of humanity, and I think he did that as someone, consider this, I think Satan did this as someone that Adam and Eve probably knew. Consider this, 
This is a very sobering reality. Now, when I talk about the stages of deception, I'm talking about the asking of illegitimate questions with the intention to deceive, number two, the making of false promises, and three, the realization of death. I think that these three things came to Eve and then to Adam by someone that they knew. Here's why I say this. Have you ever read this chapter of Genesis and ever wondered why? Eve doesn't jump out of her skin when a serpent comes up and talks to her. Because when you think serpent, you think snake, don't you? Here's something interesting to take home. In the Hebrew language, if you're reading, you're reading from the English Bible, but if you're reading and it says serpent or snake, that is being translated from the Hebrew word nakash. Everybody say nakash. Oh, come on. Everybody say nakash. There's your first Hebrew lesson, guys. You're on your way. Nakash is a masculine singular noun. It's masculine in gender and singular in number. As a noun, it, it just means snake or serpent. Okay? It can be translated either one snake or serpent. But in Hebrew, most nouns are derived from adjectives. Remember, adjectives are those words that describe nouns, right? If nakash is being used as an adjective, it basically can be translated as luminous, something that uh, is self-illuminated, or even brassish in appearance. If you can think of like, I don't know, something made out of brass. Something that is brash, I can't say this word, brassish. <laughs> I want to make sure I say that carefully. If you can think of that color brass in an illuminated form, this is what it's like when nakash is used as an adjective. But when it's used as a verb, it's translated with the understanding that the one who is the nakash is lying deceiving or practicing divination. Lying, deceiving, or practicing divination. Now, do you remember what divination is? Divination is the seeking of hidden and forbidden knowledge which God has not permitted. God has said no. This is always a no. Now, who is the source of the forbidden knowledge in this story? Satan is. You know, this is where we get the word occult or occult knowledge, knowledge that has been intentionally kept away from humanity. It ultimately comes from the father of lies. Occult knowledge in any period of time comes through one means is a form of divination. In today's world, you could think of using a Ouija board or a variation of it or playing with tarot cards or getting involved with astrology for the purpose of contacting spirit entities in the heavens that people will not admit are evil, these people who do these things, for the purpose of gaining knowledge over their lives. This is what nakash means, serpent means as a verb. Now, let me take you just a little bit further in your understanding of this. If you ever read, and you should read, you should go home and do this tonight, you should read Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Go home and read Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. In these two Old Testament prophetic passages, the kings 
of Tyre and Babylon are being lamented over by the prophets. And they're being judged. In fact, so is their country, okay? Tyre and Babylon. I think uh, Isaiah's Tyre and Ezekiel is Babylon. But in both of these passages, the prophets just lament over what these kings have done and led their nations to ruin. And then the prophet just goes on and on. And then it begins to talk about someone who is not the king of Tyre or king of Babylon. And it becomes overwhelmingly obvious that the person he is now talking about is the spirit entity, evil spirit entity over these two kings. And it turns out to be Satan himself. Satan, in the book of Ezekiel, is once described as a cherub adorned with splendor who became so proud and wicked he desired to ascend to a higher mountain than the mountain of God and he was or, that the mountain of God was that he was already on so that he might actually be worshipped above God. Now in Ezekiel, some manuscripts actually say Eden, the mountain of God. Satan desired to go from Eden where he was stationed for good service to a higher mountain so that he might be worshipped, I think, by the fallen host of heaven and by humanity itself. So, let, let, let me bring this home for you, okay? In my judgment, I think Eve doesn't freak out because when the serpent spoke to her, she probably knew exactly who he was. And so did Adam. But what she did not know is this one who is luminous and beautiful in appearance now has a fallen evil nature. Eve was probably talking to a serpentine figure that had at least two wings and was brassish or luminous in appearance. And when Satan tempted Eve, he was telling her, go ahead and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're not going to die. You're going to be like God. And that won't change a thing. Now, what's even worse about all this, in my opinion, is that sometimes, actually all the time, real liars and deceivers that we've been describing tonight often leverage their relationships with other people. And I think this is exactly what Satan was doing. She knew who he was. She had probably seen him come and go and do the things that cherubs do. I don't really know what that was in Eden. But she knew who he was, and they may have had some contact before. Because prior to this, there is no fallen nature. Nobody's evil. Eden is conceptually a very different place than what we can think of today. I think, Eve was, I think Satan was leveraging his relationship to her to get her to believe that it was okay for her to transcend her nature. Because if he could get her to do it, he could get Adam to do it because of her relationship to him. So, dads, fathers, husbands, right? It really is up to you to keep your children in the active discipline and instruction of the Lord. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And he goes on to say, 
later in the very same chapter, you've got to read these things in context. He says, finally put on the whole armor of God and be in his strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the what? The schemes of the devil. It's in the same chapter. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Dad, dads, you've got to. You've got to do this. Husbands, you've got to do this. You've got to actually instruct your families in the knowledge of the Lord and His discipline. He says, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist the forces of Satan on the evil day and stand firm. He says, gird your loins. Gird your loins with truth, with a breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel message, taking up the shield of faith by which your faith, belief, and trust in the truth, you will actually be able to offensively extinguish the fiery darts or the lies and half-truths of the evil one. And put on this helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is actually the Word of God. This is not an option, men. So dads and husbands, sooner or later, you're also going to have to tell your children the uncomfortable truths of the old deluder Satan. You're actually going to have to tell your kids, your wife, about demons. Satan, fallen evil spirits. Sooner or later, you're going to have to tell them because what's going on in people's minds in our post-truth culture is what Satan and demons are doing to lost people. And I don't have to point out how many times in the New Testament the, the apostles tell us, do not be deceived. Because you can be deceived. So dads, evil knowledge from Satan, demons, and other evil spirits is just as real in today's world as it was in the Garden of Eden. It comes in many different ways, and it comes from many different kinds of evil spirits. Only those that actually know what the Word of God says, who believe it and trust it, will be able to stand in the evil day that we're in, and the worst evil days that we know are coming. So, human beings, people, (laughs) human beings can no more change their genders than they can their need for intimacy through fornication, their marriage needs through adultery and homosexuality, and the most wretched of all, pedophilia. Pedophilia is an evil that is truly banging on the door to knock it down as quickly as it can in our time. And it's probably going to do it through the lie of a name change. Pedophilia will move from that name and is moving in some circles to that of minor attracted persons. If you watch closely what the deceiver is doing He is taking abominable names and ideas and twisting or perverting them 
so that they can be reaccepted, relabeled as something else. And as a result then, many of these people in society will be justified and they will take others with them. Now, if it is the case tonight, I don't know a whole lot of you, I know some of you, it is the case tonight, if it is the case tonight, that you are not born again. You actually don't need to wait until you go home to figure that out. You actually need to come forward and talk with me about the gospel. We have elders here that can talk to you about the gospel. And you can come into a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ. Everyone else, if you are struggling to resist the fiery darts of the evil one, take that seriously. And if you are losing that battle, come and learn about prayer, about fasting, about spiritual disciplines, about how you can go about to think about, meditate on, trust the Word of God in every area of your life. All right? Shall we stand and sing our hymn of invitation? I am the way, hearken the loving call, obey, come for he loves you so, only a step, only a step, come for he bled for you. same loving Savior, yeah, Jesus the crucified, casting your heavy burden down, come to the cross, the world may frown, yeah, you shall crown when he makes up his